0: you, Renee and Lissette, and certainly this song reminds us that God's speaking loudly in His creation. Let's pray. Father, our lives are Yours, and we be a living sacrifice. I pray, Lord, in this time in Your Word that we would hear You speaking to our hearts and follow You. Thank you, Lord, that you came and redeemed us and brought us out of darkness into light. May we walk in it now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to talk with you about Adventist education, its essentials for which there are no substitute. I'm going to start this morning with an article that ABC News reported on, screen time in kids, new findings that parents need to know. The digital age has made screens more accessible and portable than ever, and although the full implications of screen time exposure on young kids whose brains are still developing is not yet known, there's concern that screens can use, there is concern that screen use can affect cognitive and language development and lead to problems in school and make some mental health disorders worse. Because of these concerns, the American Academy of Pediatrics created guidelines in 2016 for parents to limit their screen time. Some of those include avoiding screen time for children younger than 18 months with the exception of video chatting. From 18 to 24 months, introducing digital media by watching quality programs like PBS Kids or Sesame workshop with children. For ages two to five, limiting screen time to one hour per day and quality programming with kids. For ages six and up, limiting media use and device type and and ensure media use does not interfere with sleep and physical activity. A new study from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center published in the Journal of American Medicine Pediatrics showed concern with evidence that brain structure may be altered in kids with more screen use. Researchers looked at brain MRIs in 47 preschoolers and found that screen time uh, over the AAP's recommendations was associated with difference in brain structure as related to language and literacy development. And then a little farther, it says Dr. David Anderson, a clinical psychologist and senior director of national programs and outreach at the Child Mind Institute, it's especially important, he says, to be very cautious when using screens with young children as this study highlights as young children are in a critical developmental period. Now, I want to reference to one other article here to get going. This one here is in Time, worrying new research about kids' screen time and their mental health. Now, in the beginning of the article, gene twinge who's a research scientist discovers not much to our surprise that if your child spends seven hours a day on a screen they are likely to be depressed uh, that would depress most of us i think but for all the data she took from the census in 2015 this is a 2016 report we get down to the end of the report and this is what it says Not everyone agrees with the conclusion of Twinge's new study. Now listen to this. The authors appear to have cherry-picked outcome measures in terms of what results they could find that are statistically significant, says Andrew Przblinski, an associate professor and director of research at the Oxford Internet Institute. Last year, Przblinski published a study that examined an older version of the same Census Bureau data that Twenge and her co-author in their new paper based on that data and concluded that the advice to limit screen time of young kids was not warranted. It is true that there is very small and consistent correlation in many data sets between screen time and a range of outcomes, but the correlation some studies have found between increased screen time and outcomes like depression do not prove one is to blame for the other. It may be that kids who are anxious or depressed are just more likely to spend a lot of time using screens. For the research in this area to mature, people need to sort out these factors before making expansive claims. Well, good luck, parents. Uh, Get your PhD in screen time use, and you can sort it out. I'm making a point, aren't I? We're living in an age where the experts don't agree with the experts, And nobody knows what's right, and nobody knows what's wrong. So for the very first element for which there is no substitute in the raising of your children, I'm going to introduce a different subject matter. It's called inspiration. Now, I'd like to take just a few moments so you know what to do with the data, because I'm not against information. But the secular paradigm of using up a generation or two to figure out what the past generation's problems is, or were, is a generation too late. And we've come to a place where we've got to see to believe, and what I'm trying to show you in the first few moments of this time together is that if you want a good life, you're gonna to have to discover whether or not there's a God who brought all this into existence. And if there is, by faith, you're gonna get out in front of the research cycle and you're going to be the people that someday they're looking at, wondering, how did you know to do that? That was like that for me when I was a kid. Back in the 70s, if you lived in the Midwest, where everybody was oriented to a pretty routine schedule of life, if you grew up in a regular American home that wasn't infused with inspiration, you grew up eating hamburgers and hot dogs and everything else, and a meal without a hamburger or a hot dog or some version of what was once four-footed creature not being on your table rendered it not a meal. So imagine what it's like when as a young man in a Christian school, my teacher who was a, had a master's degree in parasitology and had worked in a butcher shop, those are two very different ends of the same spectrum, he's telling me stories from one side and from the other and pretty soon he brings in inspiration, the story of Daniel, And I want to become a vegetarian. Now, I'm here to tell you that in the 70s, in Peoria, Illinois, vegetarianism was wacky. It was something they did on those coasts, mainly the West Coast. But some 40, 50 years later now, with parents who are getting the residual benefit, I want to really honor my mother and father my mother being a backslidden Seventh-day Adventist and my father being an agnostic raised in a very, very, very casual Catholic home, I want to affirm them that they were willing to move with their children and take up vegetarianism, the likes of which has probably lengthened their life with the residual Seventh-day Adventist lifestyle benefit today It wasn't cool, it wasn't in. Dr. Dean Ornish had not done his studies in the 70s, and we were not in a position of having the fact to back up the faith. But I'm here to tell you this morning, God isn't waiting around for human beings to affirm with their great wisdom that which he designed into systems, hearts, and minds for the benefit and the happiness and the well-being of his children. If there's one thing we cannot leave out of our current discussion about where we're to go with institutions from the university size on down to the smallest home school or one-room school, it's the fact that God, in a knowledge of what it's going to take to get us home, has laid out a plan with the proper adaptations for the time and place we're in. We're living in an age in which the devil is seeking to take our children from us, When Pharaoh was going to let Moses go, he says, you go ahead and go, but leave the children behind. And Moses said, no, we will take our children with us. What will heaven be if we don't have our families intact on the other side? Now last week I went through a litany, lest someone should find themselves listening to this message out of context, not only did I find my salvation in a, as a seventh grader at Peoria Junior Academy in a Seventh-day Adventist school? Not only did I find my calling in that school, not only did I find my wife from this wonderful Christian educational system, but I wanna go a little bit farther this morning and say just a little bit more. It's not just that all three of the major facets of my life are built on Christian education. It's also the fact that I am married to a teacher. My father-in-law was a superintendent of education. I sat on a K-12 board for almost 20 years, now called an education board. And almost every day of my life in ministry, I've had a church school attached to me. And by God's grace, walking in the narrow way, they've prospered. And this morning, should anyone hear me speaking without that picture frame of context, you should think that somehow I had become your enemy, except for this one thing, is that truth is true whether it's to friends or whether it's to foes. And God this morning is calling us back to a greater dependence on the wisdom that will never be discovered in the annals of secular research until the cost has been too high. This morning I'm here to assure you God has a plan to make us the head and not the tail. You know how it was. When you had a substitute teacher in school, you didn't learn as much. You didn't work as hard. You tried to get away with more, and sometimes you did. There was that occasional substitute that really understood where, you were, where the teacher who had left good lessons plans was going and where they needed to end up. But by and large, a day with a substitute was a day that was a little bit less effective for the achievements of the fuller spectrum of learning. This morning, I'm here to tell you like you can't leave certain things out of a recipe. There are certain things you cannot leave out of a journey with Jesus and expect it to turn out right when it comes to the discipleship of children. There are no substitutes allowed for certain things. The cornerstone of it all is the book Education. And there's one more book I wish every parent would get and read. Every parent. The book Adventist Home. You put these two things together and you start to have a team that can't be defeated. Now, my mother moved rapidly into second place when I was an early adolescent in that church school. Oh, I fought her. That day, she took me out on the step at my uncle's house at the end of a little mini vacation, which we almost never got. She ruined my vacation. There I am standing there in Sugar Grove, Illinois, not far from the deceased Broadview Academy. And she's telling me that when we go back, I'm going to a church school, and I'm telling her, I'm looking down at her because I'm taller than she is, and I'm telling her, I'm not. And she's looking at me with that... You, you, you better remember who you're talking to. Look, I am. And you are. And I want to tell you, it's not many months into that experience before my teacher is now the primary person shaping my life. My mother understood that that teacher was her friend, even though that teacher had taken over the position of greatest influence. When it comes to working together, when a pastor and a teacher, or a parent and a teacher, I should say, work together, certainly pastors and teachers for sure as well, but slightly different setting, you begin to get the team that can't be beaten. Now, my mother taught me that teacher was the voice of authority, and that voice was to be obeyed, and never once well, maybe occasionally, but I don't hardly remember a specific time. Did my mother ever say a word against our teachers? My mother understood that the goal was to take this little child that actually came from her womb, who had some problems. Some of them were hereditary, some of them were environment, and some of them were self-chosen by the person himself with the name Ronald Paul Kelly Jr. And she figured she needed as much help as she could get to get him from the ornery little child he was to an honorable adult. And along the way, she knew compromising authority would compromise the process. Your children will endure the hands of even a not so good teacher, but they will not endure well a divided environment. It goes for marriage between husband and wife and it goes for parents between parents and teachers. I don't know how many behind the scene conversations my mother had with my teachers, I found out later on she did, and I'm glad she did, because she was following a biblical narrative. Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of, Le- of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Probably the most quoted and least observed scripture in the entire Bible. Leviticus chapter 19. And I'm going to do this on my device this morning. Leviticus chapter 19. Nineteen, And let's go to verse 17 and verse 18. Leviticus 19, verse 17. Uh, This is the King James Version. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Thou shalt in any wise, which means you do this, rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt. can we say it together? Love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, we quote it left and right. But when it comes down to the actual practice of not letting those bad feelings grow in our heart and speaking frankly with our neighbor, in this case, maybe our children's teacher, we don't do it, not like we should. And for those of you that do, praise the Lord, your children will rise up someday and emulate you and call you blessed. But here's the fact. God never designed that ill will should grow in the fabric of his family. And so he determined that for those things that need to be discussed and by the way there are some things you just dismiss they were little they were insignificant and they're not going to hang on you but for those things that need to be discussed they are to be discussed so that the feelings can't grow inside of you and the failure of do this is a disservice and it is a absence of christian integrity for the teacher in this case And it's a disadvantage to your child because you cannot not tell your story. So those little feelings that nurture and grow with the hand of the adversary of your soul and your children's souls, they fertilize very well. And those little feelings that grow into stronger resentments and questions and suspicions and doubts, they pop out. And they wound your child's ability to be properly discipled by the teacher. And it works both ways, teachers. You need to have the courage to nicely say to a parent, have you thought about doing this different at home? I was talking with a teacher not long ago, and this teacher was convinced that the kids coming into our classrooms on certain days weren't mentally prepared to do the basic math concepts. Why? Overstimulation. Lack of mental calmness. You see, friends, there are some things you cannot substitute if you want an excellent outcome. The first is doing it God's way. The second is for parental leadership to be the initial educational system and the supportive one when the kids are in a different educational system. Teacher and and parent together works for the child. I was talking to our principal on the bus yesterday on the way home from the airport, and he said to me, we were talking about a certain situation You know, you could call these people up when you had an issue with the child, and guess what? The child came to school differently. Certain parents step in and solve the problem so the teacher doesn't have to. You see, teachers build a bond of filial affection between them and the student, but that bond will never be as great as the parent's bond. Listen, parents, Don't be afraid to parent. Do what you're supposed to do. Love the kids and help them to grow up knowing you'll never do anything unloving to them. But the definition of love by modern society and the biblical construct is a little bit different. My mama gave me a lot of love that didn't feel loving at the moment. But in the long run, I've risen up and called her blessed. And along the way, you're not supposed to be protecting your child's self-esteem. You're supposed to help your children find the path of truth and life and true self-esteem grows within as they follow the duty and destiny of their Savior, Jesus Christ. No, you cannot substitute the role of a parent. As a matter of fact, parents, home is the first school. And it's critically important that you're not guessing around with the latest studies about how to do this. The third thing that cannot be substituted in the education of a child is prayer. Every single day... With almost without exception, my children's names are on my lips. I am praying as now all of them are emancipated. I don't know, is that the right word? Uh, Maybe. There were times when I'm sure emancipation seemed like what they desired most, but they are now beyond with the exception of a daughter who's at university still. They're in a position where it's all theirs. They're carrying it, but Their well-being is my constant interest. And so I'm praying daily the prayer of Isaiah 49, 25, contend with those who contend with me and save my children. And there are strangers in their experience and the voices of former teachers and pastors and church friends that I trust at the right moment will rise up and put their feet on the path of life. But it's a little person. They're not computer-programmed although they're programmed. But even if they're programmed well, they do things that embarrass us. I can remember when my boys were little. You know, you never want to be the parent of the first grader where the teacher is giving you a piece of paper and on the piece of paper there are things drawn that you're saying to yourself, why are they drawing this? And the teacher's asking you the same thing. It's like, why do my kids have to be the only kids that do this kind of stuff? You know, the truth of the matter is, You don't go from the beginning to the end without an amazing journey through the valley of humbleness, realizing you're dealing with a person who can make their own decisions. Praying for a sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, praying for their teacher. There is no substitute. The Bible says, brethren, pray for us. This is Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians, and it should be our admonition for each other. In the book Steps to Christ, Ellen White says we should pray for each other and let the person know we're doing it. Who needs a little encouragement? Who's on your prayer list? Let them know. Put your teacher on the prayer list and may God bless them as your partner. There are three other things this morning that I want to talk about that are imperative that there can be no substitute for. In the book Education, writing on the school of the patriarchal age, she suggests there were three things that comprised the study of these younger men and women. The first was labor. It wasn't study. Now, we've substituted leisure for labor. As a matter of fact, the great goal of everyone's life, if it's untouched by the sanctifying influence of Christ is to get as leisurely a life as soon as you can get it with as much money as you can get it so you can have the good life. But labor is a cornerstone of character development, and character development is a cornerstone of mental energy focus and receptiveness. A character that is built around labor, done well for ministry to other people is a character that shapes itself well to learning and the receiving of information. The Bible says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. The New Testament says, do your work as unto the Lord, not as unto man. What higher motivation can there be? Every job done well produces good esteem in the heart of the doer. Every job done sloppily turns work into misery and something to move out of the life as fast as possible. Ellen White articulates it in this book. It is shoddy work that actually ruins a person. So every time my mother would go into the front room, and didn't I love it when she'd do this? Didn't take me very long to figure it out. Ronnie? Ronnie? vacuum the front room. I got the vacuum cleaner out, and I did dutifully unto myself as quick a job as fast as I could do it. I didn't realize that as soon as I was done, she was going to come in and move the footstool. She was going to look behind the door, and her admonition to me was more than an admonition. It was a jetty directive, jetty being her first name. And it wasn't just that I would move the footstool and do the footstool over. She would say, vacuum the whole thing over and as I vacuumed the whole thing over I learned very rapidly that a job not well done would not be well received and consequently, I began doing better work I can remember she'd play a motherly trick on me which probably most kids already know but uh, nobody liked to clean the bathroom at my house so it was a job that she eventually gave to me And I'd go in and I'd clean the bathroom, you know, you got to, as one person said, you got to hug a toilet to clean it, and uh, you'd scrub in the bathtub with that Ajax, and you know, you don't want any ring around the bathtub. My mother would come in, and she would look at the job, and I'm assuming at this point in time I had figured out to do it well, and every time I'd complain about cleaning the bathroom, she'd say, Ronnie... You do such a nice job cleaning the bathroom. You do a very good job cleaning the bathroom. There were two ways of approaching it. One was the ray that brought the standard up, and one was the affirmation for a job well done. I would hate to live in a home where that affirmation didn't exist. But whatever my hand found to do, even though it was not in a Christian home, I was being taught to do it well. And by the way, while we were on our trip to Florida, there was an inspection of the living quarters of our young people, and they were in spirit and in plan to be kept orderly. Labor. Is your life set, or is your life too busy to teach your kids to work? It is very hard to teach somebody to work. If you want proof, just find the person in charge of the kitchen at the academy, and ask them how many good workers come through. It's very hard to teach somebody how to work. That's a mom job. That's a dad job, and it's to be added on to with a teacher's role at some point in time. But labor is not in the way. Labor is the way. The second thing that was a part of these patriarchal family schools was study. And you say, well, of course. But the study that was done was done with a purpose for not just achieving a pragmatic end. We weren't in those days yet into the full uh, blown up or... Unfettered capitalistic model. And by the way, lest someone have any doubt, I believe that capitalism works, especially when there's a church and a structure of homes strong enough to put some conscience on it. And when there's no conscience on capitalism, it's in trouble. And this is where we find ourselves today. But I'll leave that for another moment in time. The third thing for which there can be no substitutes, and the last in my list, this morning, is meditation. Now, if you were to look at the three components of the patriarchal school system, if you want to call it that, the home school even, you found labor, you found study, and you found meditation. Now, of those three, the only one in modern society that's still highly prized, at least by most, is the middle one. You've got to be able to make it through the LSAT or the MCAT or whatever it might be. It might have been the Iowa Basics when you were a boy or a girl, and now it may be the map studies. But whatever it is, we find ourselves greatly out of balance, consequentially, just like your engine when only three out of the four cylinders is running, it's a little bit of an unpleasant ride. God is calling us back to reinstitute the value of the hand as well as the head, labor as well as study. And thirdly, meditation. What does the Bible say? Be still and know that I am God. Now, I want to ask you when does being still become advantageous to a mind? Do you wait till you're 21? Till the programming's all done? Because we've substituted leisure for labor in the first of the three legs of this curriculum stool, and in the last, we've substituted sensation for meditation. And consequently, every child, some of them now more and more, younger ages, having devices like this, usually a little bigger when they're little, stuck in their hands, we're finding it's reshaping brains. It's changing the emotional fabric of who they are. But if the parents are too busy... How could we ever expect a child to learn biblical meditation? Now, in one of the articles I looked at uh, preparing for this message, there was a mother holding a baby in one hand, it was a drawing, and she was holding her device in this hand. So here's mama, baby here, device here. And coming out of the brain with green lines, so just to illustrate connectedness, there are multiple lines going from mama's brain to this device. And there's one little strand flowing out of her brain going to this. Parents are oftentimes leading the way the wrong way. Now, I'm not here to discourage a parent today. The worst discouraging things for me as a parent is when the child is 16 or 17 and sitting in the jail and I'm getting a call, would you go see them? I could wish I never received another call like that. Every parent could wish they never needed to make a call like that. But the truth of the matter is, it's when the child is young that the path is set. And if inspiration is second-tier working knowledge for you as a Christian person, especially a Seventh-day Adventist Christian person who believes that we have the testimony of Jesus, which Revelation 19.10 says is the spirit of prophecy, And while the expression of those writings like this one are not the full summation of the spirit of the prophets, it is certainly one that we recognize is legitimately a prophetic gift. And for these things to be left dustful, unread, is a terrible tragedy to the functionality of our subculture as Seventh-day Adventists. But as long as the culture seems to be functioning fine, doesn't seem to bother anybody too much. But is it possible, parents, that there is no time in your schedule for meditation, so there's not going to be any time for anybody else? And how can you really model something you've never experienced? Experiential learning, experimental religion. When when your your children never see you on your knees, but there's always noise in the home and there's always little dings and vibrations going on? How are your children gonna come to a place to where they actually know what it is to stop and to think? Carl Sandburg, one of the famous biographers of Abraham Lincoln, was also a poet. And it was interesting some of the things he wrote. He said, a man must find time for himself, man, woman. Time is what we spend our lives with. And if we're not careful, We find others spending it for us. You could almost think he was a secular prophet. It is necessary now and then for a person, a man, to go away by himself and experience loneliness. To sit on a rock in the forest and ask himself, here goes, I don't know that he made any real profession of Christianity, who am I? Where have I been and where am I going? If one is not careful, one allows diversions. This is clearly a pre-digital writing. One allows diversions to take up one's time, the stuff of life. Now, in this book, Education, writing a century ago, the author will declare that the books of the land are like the frogs of Egypt. In other words, a plague to the development of young minds. How in the world could we ever come up with a metaphor, although I suspect the frogs were many varied and and everywhere, how could we come up with a metaphor for the plague of a book where you never need the pages, you just... and it's always different, and the people who developed it did it that way on purpose because they knew that scrolling kept your attention different than turning pages. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit dangerous here. I'm going to quote some research that could be misquoted and may end up being someday, but I'm going to take a risk because I'm holding in my hands an article from the Washington Post that says, Harvard Neuroscientist. Meditation not only reduces stress, here's how it changes your brain. Now, obviously, this is not biblical meditation because the Washington Post and Harvard, though it started as a theological school, has very little interest in establishing the biblical narrative. But let's just, for the sake of contemplation, consider that the devil, knowing the value of biblical meditation, would create an alternative that would not be totally without merit and benefit. So let me say again to all those watching live or online, I have not the slightest interest in affirming yoga or any other of the mindful practices that the new age turn turned to as they've turned their back on God. But if you think the devil's not smart enough to pay attention, and if you think he doesn't know how to combine truth with error, and if you think he doesn't know there's benefit in stopping for a while, just read the article. And what you'll find is is not only does it do all kinds of things, we found differences in brain volume after eight weeks in five different regions of the brain of two groups. In the group that learned meditation, we found thickening in four regions. And they go on to discuss those four regions. The posterior cingulate, which is involved in mind wandering and self-relevance. The left hippocampus, which assist in learning, cognition, memory, and emotional regulation. The temporal parietal junction, or the TPJ, which is associated with perspective perspective taking, empathy, and compassion. And in an area of the brainstem called the pons, where a lot of regulatory neurotransmitters are produced. And wouldn't you know it, maybe a little more regulatory transmitters being produced might be just what our generation needs. And in this article here, it touts a whole list of mind, body, and spirit outside of the Bible, all kinds of things, builds knowledge, self-knowledge, improves empathy, increases compassion, helps relationship satisfaction, helps sleep, eases stress, reduces loneliness, fosters a healthy body image, and that's just in the spirit circle of these three overlaid circles. Would any of us be surprised without our PhDs in neuroscience that stopping to think about life for a little bit would have some benefits? To stopping to think about our destiny would have some benefits? When you go on to look at the article a little bit carefully, it quotes a study. Meditation may just be exercise for the brain, may not be just, may be exercise for the brain. In fact, A 2009 study from UCLA researchers showed that MRI scans of long-term meditators revealed that certain parts of their brain were larger than those of a control group, particularly in regions known for emotional regulation. Maybe that's why meditation is included in the discipleship program of the young, but not only is the devil not content to trade in meditation for sensation, he wants to totally destroy the interest that's in a human heart for thinking seriously about anything except the next dopamine fix. Now I want us to think about this. You could go to the latest science and you can say, oh maybe we ought to do this, science is affirming it. I'm not running away from science all of the nutritionists have caught up with the vegetarian and vegan living. Well, not all, but lots. Should I be surprised that eventually science without any, with with some measure of honesty, humility, and integrity ends up coming closer and closer back to the word of God? (laughs) Now, if you're a parent today, or just a child of God, Don't we have portions of the Bible, like in Philippians chapter 4, that says, whatsoever things are? Could we look at that for just a minute so that we could see where our brains should be? Let's go over to the book. Philippians chapter 4. That little book to Paul's favorite church. I don't have time to prove that, but I could do it pretty easily. Read the book Acts of the Apostles, and you'll find out. Paul had a favorite church. It was this one. And when you read the book, you can see why. He doesn't have to say very hard things to this church. But when we come to the element of Paul's life, we find ourselves looking at the kinds of things that would fill a mind with happiness, self-regulation, an understanding of what matters. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. Now, I don't want to be too wooden, maybe more wooden than the Apostle Paul was. I understand that along the way, it may not have been actual fact, but it's true to fact. Most of us would agree that Little House on the Prairie, while not an actual word-for-word dictation of dialogue, as a historical novel captures the true essence. But we've gravitated so far away from such that perhaps it's time to bring it back a whole lot closer to only the things that are true. Then we go to whatever is honorable. I don't really think angry birds and all kinds of the latent mind-numbing or most recent mind-numbing Uh, versions of how to waste the stuff of life called time really fits into this category. And, of course, that dates me. I don't keep up. I've never played the game. I don't have time to mess with this garbage. And it's garbage for a 12-year-old every bit as much as it's garbage for a 50-some-year-old. But for some reason, we think that childhood should be a journey of leisure and very little meditation and plenty of sensation, especially if it keeps them out of our hair. That is garbage. Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, that would take a lot of things off the list. Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, is there any excellence? That would take most of the mind-numbing TikTok videos out of your children's life. I stopped in Peru, Indiana, back and forth to get some things for one of our remodeling projects. Poor kid. I felt so sorry for this kid. He was craving attention. I go into a subway. You can go there sometime. Stop there at the Peru exit. Drive up past the Walmart. It's on the north side of the road. He was stuck because there was no dad in his life. And his mom needed work. And all he did was sit there all afternoon and look at worthless TikTok programming. But he was craving attention, so a stranger like me could end up coming over to the booth while his moms behind the plastic making my sandwich, and he can be showing me all of these things that are going to do nothing in the end except drag him down into a posture of mental inebriation Dependent on the next worthless thing to watch. And it was probably easier than thinking about the pain of being 10 years old with nowhere to go and nobody who cared except your mom. So you got to sit here and watch her make Subway sandwiches hour after hour with nothing to do. You see, our society is eventually going to be fed up with this kind of corporate experience, and we're going to realize the implosion of individualistic, hedonistic, self-focused living, and eventually those people are gonna get old enough to where they don't have the emotional regulatory stuff in place, and somebody's gonna do something, push a button, create a problem, and do something that creates a catastrophe, and finally everybody's gonna say, ho, oh, maybe we better go back to the old-fashioned, old, faithful, tried and true ways. We better get back to the Bible, and when that time comes, religious liberty, will be fleeing fast. You see friends, we must in our homes practice a simplicity of life that creates a mind that can actually be with itself and not be terribly undone by it. Sensation is never to trump meditation. And by the way, I'm not sure I've ever seen a group of young people more mesmerized than when those dolphins there off Key Largo were providing us an impromptu show. But we had to be there to see it, and we had to be doing something alternative to experience it. Mama, if you've got those kids, Papa, if you've got those kids, your postgraduate degrees may have to wait. That extra thing you wanted may have to be on hold. That child is the greatest stewardship or one of the greatest of your life. And God intends that your personal self-development falls in to the personal journey He's chosen for you, which is the shaping of a life, the architecting of a future. There is no greater self-development than helping somebody else find Christ and develop into their God identified self. And yet the world has held out all kinds of things you need to do and be. Get rid of your bucket list and let God fill your life with the things that will give you not only earthly satisfaction, but eternal joy. When we think about the life of Jesus, these things were a part of his life. He labored. In the shop. He never acquired a formal education in the way we think of formal education, but he did study the Bible being the center of his journey. And you know that Jesus withdrew every day as was his habit, and his contemplation of God's will for his life, his Father's will for his life, and his communion with heaven shape Jesus' journey in such a way that you and I are living a confident hope. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, what substitutes has this culture woven into the fabric inadvertently of your life? And if the appetites of your home are wrongly calibrated... It's very, very important that you wisely and patiently bend them back. There's a reason we go out into nature with our kids. Eleanor White tells it, it has the power to undo the wrong thinking of the world. It has the power to deal with fashion, which, by the way, is tied to a lot of immorality these days. It has the power, when we go to working, to create strong thinking, she says, But if the appetites of my home have been on the wrong trajectory, changing that trajectory is going to require so much prayer, so much patience, so much wisdom, and now it's time for good substitutions. The six things I've mentioned here today, none of them can be substituted. There's no substitution for inspiration. There's no substitution for mom and dad being mom and dad. There's no substitute for the praying teacher. There's no substitute for prayer. There is no substitute for teaching your young people to work. And if you're not a worker yourself, it's time to become one. There's no substitute for good study. And there's no substitute for meditation. A life too full is a life of wasted probationary opportunity. We are living in the last days. The clear thinking of Daniel is to be the clear thinking of our kids. Yes, they will suffer because some of their very friends with Seventh-day Adventist parents will get to do the things that will lead to eternal damnation. Is that too strong? They will sow the seeds and fertilize them with the parental affirmation that actually destroy a love for what's pure and holy and good. And you'll have kids who can't see the end from the beginning and they'll wonder why you're the great killjoy. Could you be loving, beautiful parents and trust that your kids will eventually see beyond the superficiality and the temporary to the great rock of Christ's love in your heart and live under the shade of your home? Friends, Jesus... When he came here, made time for each one of these things, he lived his life according to the constructs of the word he had directed should be written down. He obeyed his parents, and his parents sought the life they were directed to give him. He did not receive the affirmation of the scribes and the Pharisees, which means if your kids don't either... If your kids don't get their dream job because their convictions stand in the way, the real goal is to see Jesus coming in the clouds when all of our hopes and ambitions of a pure nature can be realized beyond our wildest imagination. Jesus made time for prayer. He actually knew his Father through the human experience. Jesus learned to love to do good work And Jesus studied this word, and Jesus would go for those walks, and he would take that quiet time to reflect on his purpose. And that purpose, from the beginning to the end, was leading him to a death. That death was my death. I'm on a probationary journey. Ron Kelly is on probation. I've never been a day in a jail for anything I did that was wrong, but I am a man on probation. And am I so glad that my mother was a good probation officer? And am I so glad that my teacher could take me the next round? And am I so glad that I get to make the journey with you and that the same Jesus who was leading me out of dysfunction all the way to the pearly gates is leading all of us if we'll let him. But that journey led him to a cross first. I'm going to share an illustration with you that was shared with me as I close. While I was down in Florida, I had someone come up to me and they said, Pastor, have you ever thought about the incarnation like this? Since God was the God of the universe, here it is. If you created the ants, and you knew that by becoming an ant, you could save the ants, but you knew you would never be a human being again, you would always be an ant, would you do it? Now, let's get past all the obvious limitations of the illustration for a moment. And let's make some time to think about what it meant for God to become a man. Is it too much for us to let God reshape our hearts so that we could have what he paid an eternal and infinite price to give us? Is God not enough? I stood for 45 minutes on that long boardwalk that some of you saw. A network engineer was camping next to us from Washington, D.C. I had no idea this man had a very fundamentalist religious background. As soon as they arrived, we took them two plates of food because it was late in the day. He was vegetarian. I had to tell him that. They didn't seem phased by it. It was good. The day before I left, I'm walking back from the shower room, and here's this network engineer, and he wants to talk with me. We stand there for 45 minutes. His wife leaves and goes and gets her shower. He stays there talking. He's still there when she's done. There are people who are looking for real answers, and they want to meet the real deal And the one thing he wanted to know is why he should listen to me. It wasn't disrespectful, but in effect, why should Seventh-day Adventism, and I mean, we kind of covered a lot of bases, why should Seventh-day Adventism think that somehow it's the real deal? And how would he know it? And I had to tell him, you'll have to find out from God himself by doing what God tells you to do as you encounter him personally yourself. Yes, the scriptures can be used to twist and prove anything you want, but in a sincere and humble heart, the scriptures will be peace. It's hard if you've been raised in a Seventh-day Adventist culture that's not very Christian, and there's no cross. And I fear that's where Seventh-day Adventism finds itself today. Lots of theology and little cross. But it's the journey of the cross that leads the way home. Wherever you're at, would you let inspiration be what it's supposed to be? And parents, would you be partners with teachers? And teachers, would you be prayerful suppliants of the throne of grace to partner with those parents? And could we all accept the renewed dignity of a job well done physically? And yes, we all put value on learning. Secular society does the same. But could we pause and be still and think about why we're here? And what it cost for us to leave here? Great drops of blood flowed from Jesus' brow. He wouldn't turn aside. Praise the Lord for Mary. Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord that his feet were put on the path of life as a young man and he chose to walk it. And now he's walking it with you and me. No substitutes allowed. You don't want to substitute. Just substitute one ingredient for another and serve it to your best friends. Don't serve it to strangers because only your best friends will be able to tell you that wasn't very good. You ever been at somebody's house? I had a relative once when I was living here going to school. They came to the little house we lived in and they brought a pie. I think it was a peach or apple pie. I think they messed up on the baking powder, baking soda thing and I felt like I was eating one bite of aluminum after another and I didn't want to hurt their feelings so I chose to suffer and I ate the whole thing. No substitutes allowed and someday when we walk through the pearly gates, and Jesus says, welcome home, we will be long and we will be at home. Until then, may our homes and schools and churches be what he's leading us onward and upward to be. May God bless us in that journey.